In your Bible, if you would join me in Matthew 13, Matthew chapter number 13, we're going to read verse 1 down to verse 9 and then jump over to verse 18 down to verse number 23. When you get to Matthew 13, you have Jesus on a boat on the Sea of Galilee, the blue waters underneath him and a massive crowd on the yellow sandy shores. Behind the crowd would have been a cascade of rolling hills and fields. And as Jesus is sowing the seed of the word to the crowds, he may have seen a farmer, which was a familiar sign to the crowds in that day, who had a bag over their shoulder, taking seed and throwing that out and sowing that seed. And in that setting, this parable that Jesus gives is born. Verse 1, the Bible says, And the same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the seaside, and great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow, and when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched. Because they had no root, they withered away. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. And other fell unto good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Verse 9, he who hath, who, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And he says in verse 18, Hear therefore the parable of the sower, when anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catches the way that which is sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. But he that receives seed into stony places is he that hath, who hath, that heareth the word and anon or immediately with joy receiveth it. Yet he hath not rooted himself, but dureth or lasts for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word by and by or immediately he is offended. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. But he that receives seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit, bringeth forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Father, we thank you again for your word today. Let it be fruitful today. Let it bring forth fruit to both salvation and glorification to our King Jesus. Have your way now in your service. And we ask it in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Today we're looking at the parable of the soils. A parable is a comparison. It was a very familiar teaching device the Lord used to compare that which was not seen with what could be seen, to compare what was very clear and tangible to what was not clear and not tangible. We call parables earthly stories with heavenly meanings or spiritual meanings. In the parables, the world of nature becomes a witness to the spiritual world. The physical acts as an illustrator and consider that the same God who authored the existence of what is spiritual, also authored the existence of the physical, and so the physical created world becomes a witness again 
and a tangible illustrator of the intangible spiritual realm. Jesus didn't invent parables. They were used throughout the Bible. The Old Testament word is mashal. It means to be like. It's translated in English as parable, proverb, or similitude. Not all proverbs were parables, but often they could be. Job spoke in parables. Job 27.1 says, Moreover, Job continued his parable. Solomon used parables. Proverbs 26.7 says, The legs of a lame man are not equal, or they're useless. They don't work. So is a parable in the mouth of fools. Fools cannot declare parables. A parable was one was used in the figurative discourse of Balaam in the book of Numbers 23.18. And it says, And he took up this his parable and said, Rise up, Balak, and... And on and on you see parables being used. When Nathan came in to confront David because of his sin with Bathsheba, he used a parable of a rich man and a poor man. One who had many sheep and one who had only one. So parables were a common Jewish method of teaching. It's important to know that in the context. Jesus had used several parables leading up to this. This is not the beginning of the teaching of his parables, but there is a dynamic transition in his teaching in chapter 13. Up to this point, he used parables such as salt and light in comparison to the believer who's to be salt and light in the world. He used the wide and narrow gate as a parable of salvation, a parable of the tree which bears fruit with one that doesn't bear fruit. He talked about the parable of uh, the right foundation and the wrong foundation. These were all parabolic teachings. Uh, They were physical examples of a deeper spiritual reality that the Lord was giving to them. Now, the transition that happens in chapter 13 is that he strictly begins to teach the crowds with parables. Verse 3 says, he spake many things unto them in parables. And in verse 34 of Matthew 13, it says, all these things, this is after eight parables, all these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them. And so the key transition in Chapter 13 is when Jesus was giving the parables in chapter 13 and onward with the crowds, he was not giving the meaning. He was just sharing with them the parable. And a parable is an impossible riddle if you don't have the meaning expounded to you. And so parables carried a twofold meaning. They were designed to reveal truth and they were designed to conceal truth. They revealed incredibly profound truths about the kingdom and the divine mysteries that God was unfolding in this age. They were so rich that in verse 17, notice what Jesus says. Verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which you see and have not seen them, and to hear the things which you hear and have not heard them. He's saying that they are so weighty that godly saints of the past would have loved to have had these truths. So not only did they reveal truth, but they also concealed truth. If you notice back in verse 10, the disciples came and said, Why speakest unto them in parables? The disciples were clearly concerned that the people were not understanding the message. To which Jesus responds, verse 11, And he answered and said unto them, Because it's given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it is what? It is not given. Is that shocking? Is it surprising that Jesus intentionally withheld divine truth from people? Is it shocking that the loving Lord Jesus did not give His word to some? 
And why would Jesus conceal that truth from them? And the answer is because he had already spoken plainly to them. And since they didn't receive the plain truth and they rejected the plain teaching, then he wasn't going to give them continually that truth. He began to hide it from them. They didn't want the truth and he would not give it to them. He goes on to say in verse 12 through 16 that they were dull of hearing. Their eyes they closed, their ears they would not use. They had ears, but they didn't use them. They heard what Jesus said, or they could hear what he was saying, but they would not take it in. They would not understand it. They, they didn't receive it. That's why in verse 9 he says, Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Better that that would have an exclamation point on the end of it. It's in the third person imperative, which was like a forceful statement. Luke 8 verse 8 says, He cried, He that hath an ear, let him hear. This was an impassioned plea from Christ saying, You need to pay attention to what I just said. And if you have ears, you need to use them. This wasn't a casual statement. This was a, this was a impassioned cry from our Lord. And though God is sovereign, listen, He places personal responsibility on the hearer to use what God has given to them, meaning ears to hear, uh, faith to understand. God has given every man, the Bible says, a measure of faith. And that brings me to the first point in verse 18, which is the Lord's invitation to hear. It's used in both verse 9 as well as in verse 18. What's interesting, in verse 9 down to verse 23, 17 times the word hear is used. Hear, 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 hear. I mean, the, the Lord is repeating. And the Jewish model of emphasis was repetition. If you wanted to know when a Jew was wanting to emphasize something, they would say it again and again. That's why the Bible would say, verily, verily, I say unto you. That's why the Bible calls God not simply holy, but holy, 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 the thrice holy or the trihagion, the thrice holy God. It's a way of emphasizing. We use bolding, we use exclamation points, we use underlining, capitalization, Jews repeated things. His repetition is emphasizing the weightiness of the listener to hear. In Mark 4.10 it says, when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked him of the parable. What's interesting in verse 10, after it says, who hath ears to hear, let him hear, it was the disciples who came. And Mark 4.10 reiterates that it was when he was alone that the disciples came and they asked him. It doesn't say the crowds waited around to ask him what the parable meant. Why didn't the crowd wait around to ask him? Because they were not interested enough to even ask. This was the evident result of some who did not value the Word of God. Those who don't value the Word of God are okay not understanding it. Let me ask you this question, friend. When you read the Bible and you do not understand what you're reading, what do you do? Because you all, and I along with you, have that happen Every single week if you read the Bible, you'll come across something that you don't understand. Do you read it over again and again, asking God to help you understand it, as Psalms 119 tells us? Do you read through commentaries, perhaps doing word studies to learn what it means? Do you reach out to a godly mentor in your life, asking them, what does this passage mean? Or do you just move on, confused and content in that confusion? 
If you can read and be content without knowing, what group would you be in that day on the shore? Because there's only two groups. You say, well, if Jesus were here, I'd be glad to ask him when I don't understand. If you will not pursue the answer to the written word of God, do you think you would have stayed around to ask the living word? The Bible tells us in Mark 4, 23, if any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And he said unto them, take heed what you hear and what measure you meet or how much hearing you use, that will be measured back to you in understanding. Like if you really have a heart to hear, God will give you a heart to understand. I think I'm more excited about our 242 groups launching next Sunday night than about anything we've done since this church has started. Uh, we have over, like right around 200 adults, just adults who've signed up for these groups, 27 small groups that have already formed. And if you've signed up, we're going to be laying that out next Sunday night. And, and I would encourage you, if you're not yet involved in that, you need to get involved. That's going to be a church service, but it's going to be breaking up in groups, and it's going to get to where you can meet other people, you can hold each other accountable. The Bible says when the church assembles, you need to be there. And this is a special time of assembling together. And, and, and it's a great way as an older Christian to help younger Christians learn and grow. And so if you decide not to do that, make sure that you've spent time with the Lord and He's confirmed to you that that's not something God wants you to do. But one thing that is true of precious metals is this. Precious metals are not found laying on the surface of the earth. You must dig into the soil to mine precious metals out. You have to penetrate the surface level of the earth to pursue treasures found in the earth. God designed gold and precious metals to require work and energy to extract them. In the same way, the treasure of God's Word is not cheaply laying on the surface. Rather, you must penetrate the surface level of hearing to really use your ears to hear, which means to study. Pursuing, digging, seeking, longing after God's Word. The treasure of God's Word is for those who really want it. The question I ask you is this, does your life reflect a pursuit of God's Word that it is a treasure what does your study and pursuit of God's Word say about its value in your life? Would Jesus say today that you do have ears to hear? Because it's given to those who have measured out space in their heart, God will measure to them the understanding of that truth. So Christ passionately invites them to hear, to pay close attention to what they're hearing. Secondly, here we see the sower and the seed. Let's start breaking down the parts of this parable to see what it means. So what is the seed? Well, the seed is described in a twofold meaning. It is called the word of the kingdom in verse 19. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which is sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. The seed is referred to the word of the kingdom. He refers to that that way. It is the gospel of of the good news that you as a sinner and I as a sinner can enter into the kingdom of God, that we could be saved, that we could have our sins forgiven, that we could be part of God's eternal kingdom. It is also called the Word of God in Luke 8, verse 11. In Luke's parallel account of this, it says, now the parable is this, the seed is the Word of God. So the Word of God is the seed. 
And the seed is what produces life and salvation. What is also interesting is Christ calls himself the Word of God. In John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, verse 14, and the Word became flesh. So the seed that we sow, then, is not only the Word from Christ, but also Christ is sown. I like what Dr. Herbert Lochner said, the seed of the kingdom is himself the king. Christ is the seed while also being the sower. The Savior preached the Savior, himself the sower and himself the seed. Christ, when planted in the heart of a person, is able to produce saving life. He is the eternal living seed. We saw today the, in, the, in the illustration there the seed of the man, little you know, sperm coming in and, and fertilizing the egg. And that seed of the man, when implanted in the egg, brings forth life. And Christ, the eternal word, when he is placed in the heart of a person, gives eternal life. You are born again, the Bible says, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. And we are called to spread the seed of the gospel. John 5.24, Jesus says, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. And so the seed is the gospel. The seed is the word of God. The seed is the God of the word, Jesus Christ. Secondly, as to the nature of the seed, it is called incorruptible and living. 1 Peter 1.23 calls it the incorruptible seed. It is the Word of God that lives and abides forever. It is, in Hebrews 4.12, called living and powerful. It is called eternal in Isaiah 40, verse 8. James 1.21 calls it the engrafted or the implanted Word that is able to save our souls. Friend, if you want to be saved, you have to open your heart up to the Word. That's why more and more I see this, and it's so concerning in the world we live in. I asked somebody, if you stood before God and he said, why shall I let you into heaven, what would you say? And they're like, you know what, I just never have thought about that. Really, do you believe there's a God? Well, I think there's a God. You believe heaven and hell is real? It could be, I think so. Uh, so, so do you believe the Bible? Well, I don't know, I never, never really read it. Never really read it. Do you have any interest in reading it? Not really. Do you have any, have any interest in knowing the God who created you? I'm pretty good, I'm good. They have, they have no interest, no interest in taking the seed that would produce eternal life. And because their heart is hardened, then they won't even consider taking the time. I've asked, I don't even know the number of people in my life. Is it not worth taking one month of your life to say, God, if this word is your word, if this does produce salvation, uh, let me know it. Open my eyes Open my heart. If I'm wrong, I want to know. Open to the gospel of John and say, God, if it's true, show me. Is it not worth taking 10 minutes a day for one month to study and seek and pursue to see if it's even true? And if you won't do that, you're not savable. You're not. If you won't put any interest in hearing, then God won't let you have it. He won't. That's why he says, it's given to you to know the mystery of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not given. They came to the shore, but they didn't even care to ask what it meant. It's not given to them. It's just not. 
I've offered it. I've made it clear. They don't want it. Then I'm going to give them what they don't want. They don't want the truth. Then I'll let their, their judgment will be their sin. Their sin of rejecting me will be the reward they get from me. You don't want me, then you won't have me. You want your sin, then I'll give it to you. You don't want righteousness, then you'll live confined to unrighteousness. You don't want illuminated by the Spirit of God, then you will live in the dark. Well, I'm an agnostic. People tell me today, it's like the man who told Charles Spurgeon, he says, uh, with a haughty attitude, Spurgeon says, what is your faith, man? He says, I'm an agnostic. He said, oh, really? He says, don't you know that's a Latin equivalent to ignoramus? I don't know how much the man appreciated that. Who is the sower? Jesus refers to himself later in the chapter as the sower in a different parable, Matthew 13, 37. He answered instead of them, he that soweth the seed, the good seed, is the son of man. Christ sowed the word of God to the people. Christ was a sower, but sower here in chapter 13, verse one, uh, 3 through 8, as well as verse 18 through 23, is in a generic sense, which means that it's not speaking specifically of Christ here. It includes Christ, but it also includes more than Christ. This is, this is anyone who would spread the gospel, anyone who would spread the message of the kingdom. That's why when Jesus was leaving the earth, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Every Christian needs to be a sower. Every Christian needs to be spreading the message. Matthew 9.37, it says, Then he saith unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the labors are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest. He doesn't say that a bunch of souls would be saved. He says, pray that there would be laborers to go to the harvest. There, there needs to be workers in the fields. We are saved to serve and we are saved to sow. There is one thing you and I cannot do in heaven. Everything in heaven will be better except one thing. Our righteousness before God, living right, when I say that, before God will be better. Our worship will be better. Our singing will be better. Everything will be better except one thing. In heaven, you will not be able to evangelize. You will never be able to share the gospel again. You'll never tell anybody else about Jesus Christ. You get one life to do that. We have one life to spread the gospel. And, and we're here for that. God would have taken us to heaven when we got saved otherwise. We, we are here so we can share the gospel. And you don't have to be a professional farmer to sow seed. Uh, you know, a little child may drop a seed as effectively as a man. If each of us must realize that life or death, heaven or hell, may depend on our personal sowing of the good seed of the gospel. Also, all the sower can do is sow. You can plant the seed, you can water it, but you can't give life to it. You can't make it grow. Mark's gospel, it says the seeds grow in a mysterious way of themselves. It's the Greek word automate, where we get the word automatic from. The sower is responsible to sow, but the Holy Spirit is the one who produces the growth. The seed is living, and it brings life of itself. And so, well, you know, I just, I don't know what I should say. If you don't know how to share the gospel this morning, it is imperative for you to come to foundations to learn how to share the gospel. I'm telling you, friend, it is a dangerous, if, if you never, there's only two types of people, those who are saved who share the gospel and those who are lost. That's true. 
I don't know how that comes across, but you just need to know that's true. You say, I never share the gospel. That, the B-I-B-L-E teaches that. That's, I'm telling you, if you're saved, you can't hide that. And, and it's not that every day you're going to be evangelizing and, and boldness and, and sharing, but it means that in your life, you will tell other people about Jesus Christ. It comes out. If it's in, it comes out. I mean, people around you will begin to know, yeah, they're a Christian. They've talked to me. They've invited me to church. They told me they're saved. They've asked me if I'd like to be saved. They've, they've shared with me that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me, rose again. I mean, it will come out. Jesus said, if you don't confess me before others, I won't confess you before my Father. There is no hidden Christianity. People say silly stuff like this today. You know, my politics and my faith are between me and God. And Oh, really? Then... Um, why do you post all that stuff on social media for the first place? But then over here, uh, you know, they never say, you know what, my, uh, my belief in my sports team is between me and my team. <laughs> right? And I'm about as offended at Michigan fans as about anything else, or Steelers fans, right? <laughs> so, yeah. But they don't mind offending people over sports. Y'all with me? Right? But when it comes to Jesus... I don't want to get anybody you know, stirred up. You know, we live in a pretty sensitive world these days. It's not politically correct. I don't think Jesus ever was worried about being politically correct, right? He wasn't worried about like, hey, don't, don't, if, if it's, don't bring me up if somebody gets offended. You need to hold back, pull back. You know, it doesn't say that. So, so we, we need to be those who are sowing. The farmer who gets no crop is a farmer who sows no seed. You, you must proclaim the gospel. When is the last time somebody heard you tell them of Jesus? If, if it's been, if you can't remember after the end of this service, you need to be down here at the altar or on your knees at your seat saying, God, forgive me because I am sinning every week, perhaps the greatest sin, which is not loving other people because I'm not telling them of the greatest truth they ever would need to know. That's like living among stage four cancer patients and you have a cure for them, but you're not willing to tell them. Would that be unloving? We have to understand the weightiness of this. That's why I said at the end of last year, and I say at the beginning of this year, you need to have written down everybody in your life, all your family, friends, loved ones, neighbors, and said by the end of the year, I'm going to make sure I've at least told all of them about Jesus Christ. There's no neighbor that I had that I didn't tell about Jesus Christ. I went down the street, talked to them. How do they respond? 24 of them came to know Christ. Share Jesus with them. I can't save them, but I can share it. I had one neighbor that rejected it for a long time, and they ended up getting saved two weeks before they died. So don't, don't hold that back. You have to go to them. And I'm just an average guy as anybody else. We must share the gospel. My parents live way out in the country. They've gone to every one of their neighbors, and all the lanes are like 300 yards, you know. It's like, man, you got to drive way down all these lanes and they're way back. And, but all of them, they've talked to about Christ. Now, now, we see the sower, we see the seed. What are the soils? And, and that's what we're going to transition to here in this last point. When I say last point, that seems like it's like going to close in like two minutes. But that's, if you're at Lighthouse very long, you know that doesn't happen. So uh, this just means we're rolling to the end here. Uh, verse Number four is a comparison to verse number 19. And here he begins to break down what the four soils are. He says um, in verse four, when, 
And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside. And he begins to expound on what that means in verse 19. And he's expounding it to his disciples. Now, what is the wayside? Well, the landscape of Galilee would be crisscrossed with fields, and the fields bumped up to each other. There were no systematic like highway systems like we have today. People would walk through the terrain and over the landscape of that country, and there would be three-foot-wide paths that were outlying all of the fields. And because people walked on them and they, they traveled by animals as well, those surfaces would be extremely compacted, very, very hardened soil. Such heavily walked paths would cause the soil to be very compressed. And when the sower was spreading, uh, they would broadcast, it's where the word comes from, but they would, they would spread that seed. It would land on good soil, but some of it would land on that hard soil north toward the edges of it. And, uh, and, and, and it would be a place where the birds would have easy access to the seed because it would be laying exposed. And what does it represent? Verse 19 says, When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catches away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. This, this is representative of a heart that hears the word, but their heart is hardened to God's word, and they make no response to it. They have no ears to hear the word. They don't read the Bible. They don't care to read it. They don't care to know it. They're, they're in the words of Jesus, dull of hearing. That's why verse 19, he says, hear, hear the word, but they do not understand it. And the problem is they're okay to not understand it. Now, I would ask the question in verse 19, was there a problem with the seed? Was there a problem with the sower? Where was the problem at? Soil. One thing that, we'll, that we must understand, it's not the, the seed that needs modified, it's the soil that is the problem. Too many churches are trying to modify the seed these days. It's a soil condition. And one thing that will harden man's heart against the Word of God is sin. Many have, through the day-to-day -day sins of life, have become very hardened. Their hearts have been trampled down through sin. This day, this kind of soil has become so prevalent, people have allowed sin to run wild in their heart, and it just hardens it. There are sometimes young people and old alike who come and they hear it and they, have, they are so unmoved by the message. I mean, I didn't get anything out of that. Do you know on that shore that day, everyone on the shore would have looked at Jesus and thought, I didn't get anything out of his sermon. Every single one of them, except the ones who came and sought the truth. How to deal with hard-hearted people? You need to love them. They're not an enemy. They are a mission field. You need to pray for them. Don't get argumentative, don't get angry, you need to pray for them, love them, and realize that you can't save them, but you can share the truth with them. And don't let their hardness of heart keep you from sharing. I remember Nathan telling me, he says, don't go visit my brother, he's an atheist, make my mom cry for going to church, and now that young man is on the mission field preaching the gospel, because I went and sowed that seed for a year and a half on his heart, and finally God brought salvation to that atheistic kid. Don't, don't let the fear of what they'll think turn you from spreading the gospel. The gospel is alive, which means it works when you're not there. You, you plant it, and it can produce life when you're not even around. So what happens to the seed when it lands on the hard soil? The Bible says back in verse 4 that the fowls came and devoured them. You know, fowls are the enemies of, of uh, farmers. They're always coming around and snatching stuff up. The birds would often follow the farmer waiting for him to turn his back. They could catch up the little seed in their mouth, take it away. And this is the picture that Jesus Christ gives of Satan. 
who Peter calls a roaring lion, a parable, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Verse 19, he says this, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and notice the problem, they don't understand it. They understand it not. And, it, and notice the little ETH there. The King James does that, not because it's trying to be like an old English type of statement. ETH lets you know that's a present tense verb, third person present tense verb, which means it's an action going on now and it will continue to go on in the unforeseen future. So whenever it does that, you know that that's a present tense third person verb. And that's, a, that's an excellent thing to do because it gives you greater insight into some of these teachings. So they're, they, they, don't, they don't understand it now and they just continue to not understand it would be the way you could translate it as well in, in, a, in a longer form. And, and what happens is then the wicked one comes and catcheth away. He, he continues to take that away. What was sown in their heart? This is he which receives seed by the wayside. You know, Satan is not in hell with a pitchfork. He's on earth seeking to remove the word of God from people's hearts. Why does he want to do that? Luke 8 verse 12 says this, Those by the wayside are they that hear, then cometh the devil, taketh away the word in their heart, lest they should believe and be saved. If you're here today and you don't want to receive the word, if you don't get saved, Satan rejoices over your soul. Satan loves that decision. Please don't listen to the Bible. Please keep that hard heart. Stay in your lust, your covetousness, your sin. All the church wants is your money. They don't care about you. He will fill you with all the garbage of the world and, and that seed will lay there and he'll rip it right out of your heart and he will rejoice over you. I guarantee that. Spurgeon says, It is easy for birds to pick up seed which lies exposed on a trodden path and a hard heart does the devil's work for him. There lies the unreceived seed on the surface of the soil and he takes it away. The power of the evil one largely springs from our own evil. Question, if Satan wants to remove the word, what would be the focus and should be the focus of the church? Should be spreading the seed. Should be proclaiming the gospel. That's why we preach. It is the clear word of God that produces salvation. Satan loves making people religious and lost. Satan can snatch the word from people's hearts by snatching it from the pulpit. Second seed is, or soil is the rocky ground. You have the, you have the hard, hardened soil and the rocky ground. What is the rocky ground? This doesn't mean that there were stones in the soil because the farmer would till all of those out. But in Palestine, there were large limestone beds, bedrock that lied under the surface of uh, and, and so the, the plows that the farmers would use could only go down so far, and, and they thought it was good soil, but uh, it was very shallow amount of earth, not enough to sustain a crop. And what happened was the seed would go into the shallow soil where it would decompose in the warmth of the soil, release it into the moisture of that shallow soil, and immediately spring up life. So the roots would go down, and the stem and the branches would come up. And, and a farmer, not knowing that the limestone was there, would think he would have a bumper crop because it was coming up so fast. But what happened is the same sun that helped germinate the seed with the warmth and so forth would also be the same sun that would burn up the little plant. The moisture that was originally in the plant evaporated in the heat of the sun. And what it represents is people who hear the gospel, they take it in immediately and they even express joy. They could be so excited, but their faith is superficial. It doesn't have any depth to it. 
The problem is their understanding and faith is so shallow. They, the Bible says they have no root. They have no depth of their faith. They believe, but only for a little while. And then they fall away. Verse 21 says, when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word by and by, or that means immediately they are offended. And so the same sun that produced life in the seed is also the same sun whose heat tests the little plant. And the only way it will survive is to have depth in the soil to gain moisture to live. In the same way, when you become a Christian, you're going to face trials in the sun who brought salvation will also bring trials in your life, not to destroy you, but to grow you, to validate your faith, to show that you're a real Christian. And if you do not have any depth to your faith, you will fall away. The trials will expose you as an unbeliever. So many think, if I get saved, everything will get better, easier, smoother, when in reality, it could get more difficult. Some say, well, then why would I get saved if life gets more difficult? And the answer is, we didn't get saved so life could become uh, easier. Christ is not a life enhancement plan. Salvation is not from the hardships of life. Salvation is from eternal judgment and the sin that would have sentenced me to hell. And when you get saved, you become part of God's kingdom while you're living on earth in the domain of Satan's kingdom. And he will hate you and oppose you and trials will come. Jesus made clear that you have to take up your cross to follow him. That all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And so you will face trials, but those trials will either validate you as a Christian or validate you as an unbeliever. Trials burn up false believers, but they build true believers. That's why James 1-2 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials, when you fall into diverse Parosmos is the Greek word there. Is that you today that you've gone through trials in life, but you didn't last? You, you faced some difficulty. You prayed for God to forgive you, to save you, but then you went through some trial hardship and you fell away from the truth. Listen very closely. The Bible never says to look back to a time that you prayed a prayer to validate your salvation. The Bible always says, look at your present condition and validate it now. Because if it was real then, it will still be real today. Jesus taught falling away evidence is a lack of true salvation. 1 John 2.19 says they went out from us because they were not of us. If they were of us, no doubt they would have continued with us. But they went out that it may be manifest they were not all of us. Three-fourths of these seeds die off. Three-fourths of what's planted doesn't last. If you're saved, He keeps you from falling and presents you faultless before His throne of grace. That's why 1 John 5, 4 says, Whosoever is born of God overcomes the world. It's not you that overcomes. It's the Spirit of God dwelling in you that gives you the victory. And that's why you're here today. If you're saved, you're like, I, you know, I've been through so much in life. If it, and you'll say something like this. If it wasn't for God keeping me, I don't know where I'd be. Right? If it wasn't for the Lord sustaining me, if the Lord did not sustain me, I would not have lasted. Amen. That's right. It's true. Yeah, you wouldn't have lasted. Right? If it wasn't for God's... Uh, one reason you can know you're saved is because you've gone through the heat of trial and you've come out on the other side still believing and confessing Christ. A third soil is uh, the thorny soil. These are what I would call the carnal or distracted hearts. What is a thorny soil? Well, around the edges of the fields, you would have brush and thorn bushes that would overgrow certain parts of the field. Some of those uh, seeds that would land in that area with the overgrowth. And, and, and they would choke out the little plant and the seed from being able to produce life. There's too many weeds surrounding the little plant to let it grow. And what does it represent? Verse 22 tells us. 
He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word and it becometh unfruitful. Becometh, it continually stays unfruitful. There are people who again make a quick outward decision, but they're so tied up in the world, they get, they get, their, their heart is held by the world instead of by Christ. They want Jesus, but they're not willing to uproot the sins of life. They're not willing to repent. They're not willing to cast away the pleasure of the world. They want salvation, but they're so attached to the world's cares and pleasures. They want heaven, but they won't let go of earth. These are people who say they believe, but they never stay with it. Their faith doesn't last because they're not genuine. They had too many other things in their life mixed in and disrupted their faith. Three things Jesus mentions here. He says the cares of this life. This is the person they just never have time for church, no time to serve, no time to read, no time to pray. They always have reasons they can't do things spiritually because they're so tied up with the world's cares. Their schedule is defined by the world and not by God. Is that you today? Always, always making an excuse. You always give up spiritual things because the physical things take the priority. I'm telling you, that's a dangerous place to be. Secondly, the riches of this life. This is a person who cannot serve the Lord because they're so tied up in serving the almighty dollar. The average American thinks about money 50% of their waking day. How to get more, how to spend it, how to buy stuff, how to uh, worry about losing it. People like this cannot give to the things of God because they're so tied up in the things of the world. Let me ask you, are you earthly rich and heavenly poor? What does your money say about what you truly value? Thirdly, the pleasures of this life, Jesus says. The word pleasures here is the Greek word hedon, where we get the word hedonism from, is a person who lives their life for pleasure. They cannot give up their sexual sin, their immorality. They want Jesus, but they're just not willing to give up their sin. They want Christ. They will pray to be saved. They will cry over their sin. They will, they will, oh, I'm so sorry for my sin. I'm just so sorry for these things. I'm involved in them. I'm so sorry. But they just never let them go. And that's why they just never want to get involved in a small group. They never want to really, they can't really be faithful all the time. They just, they don't really want to read and pray. They, 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 and they end up falling away because they won't let go of the world. That's why 1 John 2, 15 says, Love not the world, neither the things in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, it's of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth, doeth. They continually do the will of the Father. They abide forever. They abideth. They continually abide for the rest of eternity. You always can tell these false converts... In, in, by this, they always complain over having to give up things for Jesus. I, I deal with this in life. They, they love the world and they get frustrated when they feel like they, it's a bother to them. I don't see why I need to give this up, preacher. I don't see why I can't have sex with my girlfriend. I, I don't know why I should give up these pornographic things. I've had people who told me that. I don't see anything wrong with pornography. I'm like, what? What kind of world are you living in? Well, I know that's the problem. They create their own gospel. They create a gospel that fits their life. They want heaven, but they're not willing to let go of their sin. Salvation is saying Jesus is so valuable, I gladly give up anything this world has a hold on me. I don't want any of it. I repent. I turn, I turn from it, and I turn on it. I hate what I once loved. Does that mean Christians don't struggle? No, you will struggle. But your struggle would be for Christ and not struggling to hold on to sin. That's why Matthew 7.21 says, He that doeth the will of the Father 
is the one who goes to heaven. And the last soil, and we'll wrap this up, is in verse 23. This is, you know, it's kind of depressing, isn't it, up to this point? I mean, but you know what's interesting? Jesus is giving us the reality of what will happen throughout the church age. And isn't this exactly what's happened? I mean, this is before the church started, and he's telling us what would happen, and you have, you've experienced it. You know how many people say, is my, I'm always worried if, if, if I was ever really saved. I was, I'm, I'm worried if my grandson was saved. You know, they prayed a prayer, and I remember they got baptized, but, you know, there's been 15 years, and they've never. So which one do you think they land in? I mean, Jesus is very clear on this. Truth is not defined on what we think and hope it would be. It's what he says. So the, the last soil is the good soil. And, and, and praise God, there's some good soil. He says in verse 23, but he that receives seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which beareth fruit. And then this is the shock of the story. It brings forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. You guys ready to be convicted a little bit? I can tell you the shock of the story is in verse 8 and verse 23. This is, this is shocking. An eightfold harvest was a, was a good year. If you had an eightfold harvest, it's like, man, that was, a, that was a good year. We had a good year. Tenfold was an excellent year. Jesus says a true believer will at least be a thirtyfold. What? What's that do to easy believism? Well, I prayed a prayer once. That's why Jesus said you'll know them by their... You can't tell if somebody's saved. Yeah, you can Yes, you can. You just look at their fruit. doesn't mean you're going to be always as fruitful as you could be. Sometimes you go through some dry season. But I can tell you, if you're saved, people around you will be like, yeah, they're saved. I've seen a big change in their life. It's not in, salvation is not intellectual. It's not just agreeing with the information. It's transformational. You go from death to life. You become a new creation in Christ. That's what it says. I didn't write it. But I will preach it. And, and notice what it says. He that receiveth seed into the good ground is he that... What's that word? Hear what? Hear if. What's that mean, guys? Yeah, they, they continually hear it. Does that mean you can come to church casually, read the Bible? Cat? No, that means you're like, I want to hear it. Not only do they hear the word, and they what? Understand death. It. See, the Bible could say hear it and understand it, but... That is on there so you can know, because you're not Greek-speaking, that, that this is a present imperative. This is a continual thing. You continually hear it, and you continually are like, that's what that means. That's what that means. That's why, that's why we do 242. That's why we do life groups. That's why we do Sunday mornings. That's why we do all different kinds of things, so you can learn and understand it. And then that will bring forth fruit. Now, let me, let me, i got to wrap this up, because I could preach for another hour if the time was so cursed hours. So, what is fruit? Fruit, if I could simplify it as clean as I can get, it's not just leading people to Christ. You say, I've never led anybody to Christ. That doesn't mean you don't have fruit. You could spread seed your whole life and never lead anybody to Christ. So, but, but fruit is this. It's when the truths of this book begin to show up in your life. It's when what is written there begins to be written here. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, 5, uh, 15, by him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. The Bible says, walk in the, what? In the Spirit. Well, what book did the Spirit author? The Bible. So if the Holy Spirit authored Scripture, if I walk in the Spirit, I walk in the Word. So what I find here, I begin to find 
hear. That's why you obey. The Bible says you'll know them by their fruits. You'll know them by what they do. They that hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus says, uh, if you continue in my word, then you're really my disciple. Fruit is John 15, 8. Jesus says, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. John 15 talks about these things. Galatians 5 talks about also the importance of the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering. You'll begin to see those fruits come out. You'll share the gospel. Your life will be transformed. You'll bear 30, 60, 100-fold. In conclusion, what are the soils and what soil are you? All of us were in the story today. We're all in it. We're all in this parable. You showed up. You're here. You're in the story. The question is, which one? Are you the hard soil? You haven't opened your heart up to the gospel? Listen, friend, I love you. I would sit down personally with you this week for hours, personally. I would make time for you. It's how valuable you are to me. If, if you're like, man, I have a lot of questions, right after this class, come and I will sit down with you in my, uh, the, the room over there, and I will walk through Scripture. I would love to share with you. You are so valuable to me. God loves you, friend, and he would love to share with you this eternal truth from his word. Don't, don't, don't be closed off to this. Say, God, if this is real, I need to know this, man. Like if, you had, if the doctor's like, you may have stage four cancer. Do you want to know? I don't care. That would not be a wise decision. You would want to know. Secondly, rocky ground, superficial hearers, people who make a quick decision, but they don't last. Is that you, a surface-level Christian, where you, you made a surface-level decision? You didn't really understand it. You just you know, wanted heaven, got real excited, got emotional, maybe got spirit excited, all this stuff, and then it just fell away. The heat of life burned you up. Is that you today? Are you the thorny ground, cares of this life, things of this life just got, got a hold on you? You, you? you always have a reason you can't do the things of God because you got so much in the world you're doing that, that your life has become so unfruitful and nothing really shows? Or are you the good ground? People see your life, they say, you know what? They have clear fruit in their life that evidences they belong to Jesus Christ. Wherever you're at in this story, you need to respond to that today.